coming close to the end of this study together. We've been in this book for about a year and a half, and uh, as we've been walking through it, it can be tempting to forget that there are years, even decades, taking place in the time that we've studied. And so we tend to get this picture uh, of the Apostle Paul at a certain age, and we tend to, to continue to see him that way through the book of Acts, but it's helpful for us to remember that what we are seeing in this book uh, from chapter 9 moving forward to the end of it is the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul uh, spanning decades. And so I was reminded of this this week in my study as I was uh, looking through some notes on a timeline of Paul. We know historically he was around the age of uh, in his mid to late 20s uh, when he was converted there to faith in Christ, maybe close to 30 years old. Uh, there in Acts chapter 9. And then as you follow through the sequence of events, you can see uh, Paul aging in years. So, for example, in Acts 13, when he is sent out with Barnabas on their, that first missionary journey, about a decade has passed at that point. And so now you have uh, Paul in his early 40s. And then in the span of that next decade, Paul goes on those three missionary journeys. Uh, the whole time he is intending, or at least in the latter part, he's intending to get back to Jerusalem. And so when he finally gets there to Jerusalem, he's probably in around his mid-50s. And he'll only have a few years of life left, and he will spend most of that time writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, many of the letters that we have as our New Testament. And he'll spend that time suffering. And we've been talking about that through the last few weeks, how we can learn a lot about suffering as we consider the Apostle Paul. He felt compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to suffer, but I don't think he expected to suffer to the extent that he did. And we've talked about how, for us, how suffering so often comes when we least expect it. And we've talked about what it means to suffer in light of the gospel. And so it's helpful for us to remember, as we've been looking at these passages together, what we've noted about suffering in the Scripture, that, that when we suffer, when, when things in our life happen, that we don't expect that discipline is that rock our entire world where it feels like the ground is opening up beneath us. That will either drive us deeper in our faith or it will drive a great distance between us and God. And what makes the difference is whether or not we are clinging on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue to consider that as we look at this text today, realizing that Paul teaches us, teaches us about more than just he teaches us many things through his letters, but we also learn a lot of things through his life. And so we're now at a point in Paul's life where most of what we will learn and study from him in these remaining chapters will take place during different trials, uh, during different scenarios where he is standing before a Roman and Jewish officials who are falsely accusing him and him defending himself. But, but in that, we learn not only about suffering, but about other things that we can learn to expect in the Christian life and how ultimately need to cling to our hope in the gospel. So that's what we're going to be looking at as we walk through this passage today. So today we're going to look at Acts 25, verses 1 through 27. Uh, if you're able to, if you would stand out of reverence for God's word as I read it for us. And this is what Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we continue in these trials and procedures that Paul goes through. We read this. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul 
And they argued, or they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against them that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not of the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss at how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody, for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. But then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. If you would pray with me. Father God, I do ask in Jesus' name that you, through the power of your Spirit, might draw us to repentance and faith in light of a passage that we read that might seem so unfamiliar and in some cases bizarre to us. 
a court system we're not familiar with, names that many of us have never heard before, and yet in this, Lord, I pray that you might teach us about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we're to respond to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Misconceptions have a way of hurting our relationships. That's one of the points I try to make when I meet with couples for premarital counseling. I'm meeting with several right now, and, and with these couples, I try to help them uh, to learn what to expect in marriage because so often what happens in marriage is we have problems when things don't go as we expected. When things don't turn out like we thought they and at that point, we go from disappointment at times to disillusionment. And for some couples, ultimately, that leads them to divorce. And so one of the exercises I have engaged couples go through is to actually meet with different couples in different life stages, those who are newly married, those who have been married for decades, and to go through a series of questions with those couples in order to help them learn what to expect, in order to help deal with some of those misconceptions, because if you are expecting a marriage to be one way, and then it turns out to be something radically different, then you're going to have a hard time. And that's not just true in marriage, that's true in all relationships, and is especially true when it comes to our relationship with God. So many of us, when we responded to the gospel, we had some misconceptions. Perhaps we were given those from a pulpit like this. Perhaps we were given those just from the Christian culture that we grew up in. But so often when we come to faith, we come with these misconceptions. Misconceptions that life is going to be fair. Misconceptions that everything's going to be okay. Misconceptions that everything's going to work out. Misconceptions that if we do what we're supposed to do, then God will hold up his end of the bargain and everything will work out just fine. And yet what we find in the Christian life is that sometimes things don't work out fine. What we find in the Christian life is that many times there's a great deal of suffering. What we find in the Christian life is many times there are things we did not expect. And so when they happen, the question is, will we grow deeper in our faith or will we grow distant from God? And what we have before us in the Apostle Paul is one who, I believe, things did not work out as he expected. And yet we see him growing deeper in his faith, not only through this narrative in Acts, but through reading the letters that he writes during this time. Letters to the churches in Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and others, where we see a strengthening, growing faith in the midst of trials and suffering. And I believe that happens. Because along the way, as Paul grew and matured, and now is in his 50s, and he's been walking with the Lord for decades, he had, he had learned to expect certain for us to grow in our faith, we, we need to learn to expect some things as well. And so I want to walk through just a couple of with through a couple of those this morning as we consider uh, this trial as he stands now before uh, another Roman official, as he stands before King Agrippa and Bernice, as he prepares to stand before Caesar. We can learn a few things that hopefully will help us to know what to expect in the Christian life, especially in the culture that we live in today and the world we live in. We'll begin with the first point there in your outlines. We need to expect that in this world, there will be injustice. In this world, there will be injustice.
injustice. We see here that Paul is treated very unjustly. Where we left off in Acts 24, Paul had appeared before Felix, and Felix had left Paul in prison, and he would bring him out on occasion to, to talk with him about the gospel and really to try to get a bribe from him. But, but he leaves him in prison for about two years. And so when you consider the lifetime of Paul, the, the timeline of Paul, Paul's golden years are spent in a prison dungeon. And now after two years in this prison dungeon, he's being brought before another official. Luke tells us that after Felix, we have a man named Festus. And Festus is now uh, the Roman official in charge of this province, and he is deeply concerned about what they're going to do with Paul. In fact, as soon as he gets there, he goes up to Jerusalem, and that's the topic of conversation. And so you consider this for a moment. You had this group of people who now, years before, had vowed not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. So somebody broke that vow at some point. They have eaten something, they have drank something, but their hatred for Paul has not diminished. And so now, before another Roman official, they are saying, we want to ambush him, we want to kill him, you need to try him here. And in the midst of all this, what screams out to us from the text is that this is not fair. This is not just. What we've seen over and over again is Paul had not done anything wrong. And no matter who brought accusations against him, they were false accusations, and there was absolutely no evidence for it. And so consider for a second, if you're in Paul's shoes, you've been falsely accused, you've been in prison and dungeons, you're brought before one official and two years later another official, how would you respond? What would you say? I think many of us would be tempted to, to say very clearly, this is not fair. This is not just. But notice what Paul says. Even back in Acts 24, verse 10, where we were looking at his initial response, he said this, I cheerfully make my defense. As you continue on in Acts 25 and Acts 26, you see phrases like this from Paul. He is excited to make his defense. He is cheerfully making his defense. But what you do not see is Paul standing up and saying, I protest. I'm going on a hunger strike. I'm not saying a word. Why? Because this is not fair. And yet that's the phrase we would probably utter, isn't it? Because that's the phrase we say all the time. In fact, Parents talked about giving premarital couples an assignment. I'll give you an assignment. You've got young children. If you're around young children at all, write down this week how many times you hear that phrase. That's not fair. We hear it often, don't we? Go clean your room. Well, that's not fair because I didn't make the mess. <laughs> We're dividing out the, in our house, it feels like this, uh, this, very disciplined exercise of dividing out the dessert. You know, it's got to be even. That's not fair. They got more icing than I did. And it carries on in all these different things. Well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. You know, when you think about it, we're not all that different as we grow older. We, we may not say it that way, 
We might not say it out loud at all, but so often it's in our heart. God, that's that's not fair. That this isn't right. This isn't this isn't fair. We expected things to be one way, and now they're another way. And we look to God and we say, God, this is not. In our house, we have a way of responding to ourselves and to our kids when they say it's not fair. We, we simply say this, fair ended in a garden. Because that's the truth. We don't argue fairness. We affirm that it's not fair. Life is not fair. From the playground to the grave. Not fair. And the Bible tells us why it's not fair. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created all things, and everything was fair. Everything was good. Everything was right. And he creates this perfect sanctuary, and he places Adam and Eve in the garden there, and, and he gives them everything they could ever want or need, that they would want for nothing. And he gives them boundaries to help them see. At the end of the day, they've got dominion over this garden, but they don't have all dominion because he's God and they're not. And he says, listen, you... You can have anything you want, but don't eat of that tree. Because with that knowledge comes death. And Adam and Eve do what we've been doing ever since, that they disobey God. Some of us do it in an act of just active rebellion, and we shake our fist at God, and we rebel against Him. But so often, we do it just through passive indifference. We don't really pay attention to what God says. We don't really care about what God says. We're just going to kind of do our own thing. And whatever makes us happy, what pleases us most, these rules apply to everyone else. We're okay. We're the exception. And we just kind of go through life that way. And what we find along the way is unfairness and injustice. Because fair ended in that garden. Death, disease, suffering. And there's, there's, a, there's a part of that, though, that should drive us not towards complaining to God that God is not fair, but towards appreciating an aspect that's not fair. See, God says to us that, that all have sinned, and so we weren't in the garden, we didn't need to be, because we've sinned on our own many times over. And he says the wages of that sin is death. That's what we deserve for our sin. But God is merciful. God does not... Punish us for our sin the moment that we violate his law. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about if everything was fair, if that's how it worked out. Think about just that in our culture today with man's laws. If the moment we broke a law, immediately justice was applied. That the second that your speedometer goes one mile and over, boom, you get a ticket every time. Just drop that the, the, the moment you do anything wrong and you violate any ordinance, law, or, or even just agreement, immediately you get a consequence. It's pretty terrible. And now you elevate that to God's holy standard. And if that happens, you realize Adam and Eve, they don't get out of the garden. And none of us exist today. Because in the moment we take our first breath, <laughs> we have sinned against the holy God and we rightly deserve his punishment. So... So things aren't fair, but at least there we should be able to appreciate and that should drive us towards the gospel because the gospel of Jesus isn't fair. It's not fair to God. 
to give his one and only son who was perfect and without blemish that he might die in our place? That's not fair. But God does it because he's loving and he's gracious. And so when we find injustice and we're tempted to complain and to protest and to say this isn't fair, we need to take a moment to consider the gospel. We also need to consider something that we can't fully grasp or understand. Injustice reminds us that that God is at work in such a way that we can't fully reconcile, but in a way that that we can trust Him. God, God is sovereign over all things. Now, we can't reconcile that. We, we can't make sense of all that. God, if you're in control, if you're sovereign, why pain and why suffering and why tragedy? And we don't have this perfect little formula to, to turn that frown upside down and just be happy about things all the time. But the scripture does point us towards an understanding that, that in light of these things that we can't fully see, grasp, or understand, we serve a sovereign God who is in control of everything. And he's doing a work, and many times we, we don't get that. We don't understand what that is. But in that moment, that's when we have to decide, will, will I trust him and grow closer to him? Or am I going to distance myself and just run the other way? And as I've mentioned before, I, nobody can make that decision for you. So there's much we can learn from those who've been faced with that. Some in situations that most of us will never encounter. A number of years ago, there was a, a young nursing student in Chicago suburb, 1980, who was brutally killed. The police had no clue of who did it. There, there was no finger pointing towards anybody in particular. So one young man stepped forward. His name was Steve Linscott. Now, Linscott was a student at a local Bible college. He had never met this nursing student, and yet he had a rather bizarre dream one night. And in this dream, he dreamed about the murder of this student. And he didn't know what to do with that. And so he told his friends, and if they thought about it, prayed about it, they counseled him, you know, you, you really need to go to the police and tell them because because maybe God's doing something here and this will help them somehow in this investigation. And so Lynn Scott went and he told the police. They interpreted it as the confession of a psychopathic killer. They arrested him. He was tried before a jury. It was clear that he was found guilty and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. The problem was he wasn't deemed innocent. And so he would fight that conviction for years and it would take about 12 of them before he was vindicated and he was set free and the truth was truly known. 12 years. 12 years in and out of courtrooms, 12 years in and out of prisons, 12 years away from his wife and his children for something he didn't do. Imagine that for a moment. If that's, that's you. Everybody's turned against you. Everybody thinks that you're this psychopathic killer, and you're not, and you didn't do anything wrong. Imagine how you might feel towards God. God, you gave me this dream to begin with. Imagine how you may be tempted in that moment to say, God, this is not fair. Lynn Scott did not have to imagine that because he experienced that. But as he reflected on that experience, this is what he wrote. 
come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he places us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible itself is replete with accounts of divine action or inaction that does not seem fair, that does not make sense except when viewed in light of God's perfect plan. Thousands of Egyptian children were massacred while a baby named Moses was spared. Jacob was a liar and a thief, and yet it was he, not his faithful brother Esau, who received the blessing of their father Isaac and of God. On one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind. But God has a plan, a perfect plan. Friends, we can't always reconcile that in a way that makes us happy. But we need to reconcile it in such a way where it leads us to trust in God and to hold to God. And to remember what his word says. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Remember, Paul wrote this before going through this trial. He wrote this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, I realize in your life and in mine, it may not feel good. But we're we're called in that moment to cling to the gospel. We're called to expect suffering and trials and injustice to happen. And in those times, for that to drive us to our knees and to the gospel. Because this world is not our home. And those things are to point our attention to heaven. Another reminder that this world is not our home, we see in this text, something else we should expect, point two there, that in this world there's going to be ungodly leaders. Just this awful, pagan, ungodly men and women will will lead us. And we struggle with that, especially those of us with faith. We struggle with how are we to respond to ungodly leadership. And yet consider for a moment the context of what we just read in Acts 25. Paul here is standing before wicked, wicked men. I mean, last week we looked at him standing before Felix and his wife Drusilla and I share with you historically about that couple, about how Drusilla was this beautiful young Jewish girl, but she had long ago abandoned her faith in the one true God. She had married a Syrian prince. But then when a sorcerer comes to her and tells her that, that the stars say she should marry another, the sorcerer being paid by Felix who wanted to marry her, well then she abandons her wedding vows and she marries Felix. And, and they were going to reign as a very ungodly pagan couple. Felix was a brutal, brutal ruler. He would kill his opposition, not in private, not in secret, not in a, well, maybe an accident happened way. He would crucify them in the public square so that other people would know, don't mess with Felix. And yet Felix and Drusilla look pretty good when you compare them historically with King Agrippa and Bernice, whom Paul stands before here in Acts 25. King Agrippa was none other than Herod Agrippa II, you remember in our study of Acts, and when we went through Matthew, we talked about the Herodian dynasty and the Herods and, and what wicked pagan men these were. Bernice, by the way, his wife here was also his full-blooded sister. And their incestuous relationship was a scandal throughout Rome, even according to the pagan standards in Rome. We talk about ungodly leaders an ungodly family. Bernice, by the way, was actually the sister of Drusilla. 
And Herod Agrippa II was the son of Herod Agrippa I. He was the one that killed James and who had Peter in prison. Uh, he was the nephew of Herod Antipas. You may remember in our study uh, that name. Antipas was the one who fell in love with the bride of his own brother, and so he convinced her to divorce his brother and marry him, and then they had this immoral relationship uh, to the extent that everyone knew about it, but few people would say anything. John the Baptist, though, did say something. He stood in the public square and he preached against this relationship, and it ended up costing him his head. Herod Antipas was also the one who our Lord Jesus stood before and who mocked him. And so when you study the lineage of Herod Agrippa II, you find all these ungodly men. Perhaps the most infamous would have been his grandfather, Herod II, who brutally killed all those young baby boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to rid the world of our Savior, King Jesus. And so, context. In our culture today, we are, we are quick to complain and to criticize ungodly leadership. But we have not faced the Herods. And Paul, when standing before the Herods, says this, Acts 26, verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today. Could you say that? He, he stands before this immoral, ungodly ruler and said, I am fortunate, I am blessed to appear before you. That, that, that teaches us something, though. That, that should teach us something about how we respond to ungodly leadership, how we respond when our leaders lead us in a direction completely contrary to Scripture. You might say, well, what, 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 do you, what do you do with a, with a leader who cares nothing about the brutal murder of thousands of children? Well, what do you do with a leader who cares nothing about what the Scripture teaches us and seems to lead us in the complete opposite direction of it? What, what do you do with that? We find ourselves saying things like, well, I didn't vote for him. Not my president. I don't have to do what they say because they don't love God or trust God and they're not following his word. So I don't have to listen to this. And yet the scripture gives us very clear directions of what we would do. Even when we don't want to hear those directions. And the apostle Paul, I believe, had already processed through all these things as he considered where he would one day stand. Now listen to what he wrote in Romans 13 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul, who will stand before the most ungodly of the ungodly, says... They're there because God's sovereign. Godly or not, he's sovereign. He's in control. He's in charge. And we're called to respect whatever authority he's put in place. Doesn't mean we have to agree with him. Doesn't mean that we should not protest or oppose ungodly decisions. 
But we're called to respect them in such a way that we, like Paul, can one day stand before them and others who hold their views and graciously share the gospel. And that's exactly what we'll study next Lord's Day. Paul will stand before Agrippa and with grace he will share the gospel. And I think that's because Paul later in his life, near the end, had grown and matured and understood what he was called to do. He was called to pray for these ungodly leaders. And friends, we are today as well. 1 Timothy 2 makes it very clear that we're called to pray for those in authority over us. And yet I found in my own life, I am quick to criticize and I am slow to pray. And I'll be honest with you, even when I pray, probably not stuff I should be praying. <laughs> but if we are led by people who are ungodly and unbiblical, then that's all the more reason we should be driven to our knees to pray that they might come to repentance and to lead us well. And that's what God's Word tells us to do. And there's another point we need to remember about this, that not just does this apply when there's leaders we don't agree with, but there's something here for when we do agree with leaders. You see, we have a habit of looking to our leaders as lords. Kings make good leaders. They make terrible lords. And yet we are drawn so often towards looking to people we agree with in leadership and think, well, if they just become president or governor or whatever else, they're going to fix everything. They're going to make everything right. And we put our, we put our hope in them. Friends, we need to remember something about the context of our culture we turn on our TV and see political ads and political debates and have political conversations all the time. One day, nobody's going to remember any of these names. How many of you stayed up last night talking about Festus and Felix and Agrippa? How many of you went to lunch this week talking about the Herods? If we weren't studying them today, they probably would not enter your mind because they have long since been forgotten. And the names that we are discussing in our culture today, one day they will be forgotten also. But there is a name that will stand forever. And there is a king who will reign forever. And there is a name that is above every name. And it is the name of our Lord Jesus. And that's why we're called to put our hope in him. Because here's the thing. The, the kings of this world don't have anything to offer you for your suffering. They, they don't have anything for you in your trials. But our King Jesus, he invites us to come to him in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, that we might be comforted by him because he is our true and lasting. And that's why I leave you with this point three there in your outline. We need to place our hope in the Lord and not in this world. And I realize that it's hard to do. Because there are times we are tempted not to trust him. And there are times we are tempted to say, Lord, this is not fair. And for many of us, we wrestle with, what, what do we do during those times? Surely we can't say to the Lord, Lord, I don't trust you. Lord, it's not fair. And yet, do you know the struggles we go through, they've been gone through by others before, and that's exactly what they said. I'm going to leave you with this passage. 
one that I hope you'll grow familiar with, especially if you find yourself suffering and you find yourself tempted to shake your fist at the Lord. Jeremiah the prophet, if you know much about him, you know that he went through a lot. He's a weeping prophet. Called people to repentance who would never repent. And he saw great suffering. And he would write this in Lamentations 3. I am a man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. You ever felt that way? Felt like God is just bringing his wrath down on you and you are a man, a woman under the affliction of God? That's what Jeremiah is saying here. And he keeps going. And he goes on and on. And then he says this. This is what Jeremiah, the prophet of God, says about a holy God. Lamentations 3.10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps, tore me to pieces, he has brought me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target of his arrows. Jeremiah the prophet says, God to me is a wild beast waiting through that door. If I walk through, he will maul me. You ever felt that way? And you're just like, God, just take me now. I can't take it anymore. Keep reading. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, Jeremiah says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Friends, you might feel at times like God is waiting for you like a bear ready to maul somebody. But know this, he's the only one in whom we can trust his word. And we are reminded in a culture of injustice, we are reminded in ungodly leadership, we're reminded in suffering and trials that come our way that this world is not our home. And he through these things somehow is working these things for his good and we can't see it, we can't understand it, but we know that, that one day, one day, none of these other names will matter. It will just be the name of King Jesus and he will reign for eternity and a new heaven and a new earth and no more tears, no more suffering, no more trials. It's done. And that's where we're called to put our faith. Did you put your hope in anything else? Put your hope in the rulers of this world and the candidates of this culture? Then you're going to be let in the reason Paul was able to stand firm in Acts is the same way we can stand firm today. 